Did you know that the Caribbean diaspora plays an important role in the economic development of their countries of origin? This episode of TripCast 360 is sponsored by David's Cruise Vacation, a travel agency that specializes in both land and sea adventures for the intrepid traveler. Book now at davidscruisevacations.com and experience that hands-on personal service. Hello and welcome to TripCast 360, the podcast of lively banter about travel, tourism, and entertainment. This is Michael Gordon-Bennett coming to you from a warm Las Vegas, Nevada, where the outside temperature at 11 o'clock in the morning on September 20th is a grand 81 degrees. Cool for us. And I am joined, as always, by that man from Barbados via the Big Apple, Dave Cumberbatch. Dave, what is happening in your world, man? But I'll tell you, I read a news article this morning that the United States has put in place to ease travel restrictions for folks who are vaccinated. And um, the article went on to talk about, you know, how, how, how much better this is going to be because there are a lot of folks who haven't seen their families and through the cold COVID period. Um, and, they, and, and, and they're pretty much referring to people who are not within the United States. So why did they let well, you in? Well, <laughs> why did they let you in? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, man. I, I add value. But the first thing. <laughs> but the there's, first there's thing. A, there's a visa program for that, by the way. <laughs> but the first thing that, that came to me, I live here in the United States. My kids live here. And it took, uh, it took about a year and a half before I could see them. Wow. You know, I, I think. On some level, I mean, I saw I read the same article you did. I, I saw it on CNN and mm-hmm. they were talking about people who uh, come here vaccinated, basically have to get a test three days prior. And uh, when they arrive, they're free to pretty much go wherever they want. For those people who come here who are unvaccinated, they have to have a test one day before they uh, get on the plane and okay. have to quarantine once they arrive here. So it's not just a free for all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, depending on what country you come from, uh, vaccine vaccines are not readily available. So mm-hmm. some of those folks are going to wind up having to quarantine. But overall, if you would ask me my impressions of it, on some level, we have to open these borders. They can't stay closed forever. Uh, we just have to figure out a way to management. I think the thing that scares me more than anything else is we still can't get folks in the United States to get the behinds vaccinated. So then, you know, we open our doors and I'm certain there's going to be some folks who slip through the cracks and they're going to come over and add to it. But travel and tourism is taking a beating. And, you know, most states, you know, their number one industry is travel and tourism. Listen, it's a global thing. We got folks in the Caribbean. If you look at the hesitant, the, the vaccination rate in some Caribbean destinations, it's extremely low. Oh, yeah. I, I saw, um, what was it, the Bahamas? 16%. Ridiculous. 16. They're 39 miles from the U.S. main or 39 minutes mm-hmm. by a flight from Miami to Nassau. And they're 16%. You can't tell me they don't have access to vaccines. Social so media. Be some hesitancy. Yeah. And the social media nonsense, which is basically scaring everybody off. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always make a joke. I wish people would go back to school and learn about science, but I don't think it has anything <laughs> to do with science. I, I really don't. It's not science at this point. It's just fear. Yeah, it's fair. It's fair. It's so fair. hopefully uh, we can see everybody, you know, living here in Vegas, I see the number of uh, flights coming in here. I, I'm actually looking out the windows at a plane flying by my house now. Mm-hmm. And uh, our traffic is is picked up tremendously. The Las Vegas Strip is packed. 
Mm-hmm. And it's always mm-hmm. packed this time of year anyway because of football. You know, all the gamblers come here mm-hmm. on the weekend and place their bets and watch the football on the big screen. But, you know, we've got a football stadium down the street from my house now. We've got concerts going on. I mean, this this place is moving. And mm-hmm. I don't know how much of that division is domestic versus international, but there's a lot of folks down there. Well, that's the, that's 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 the city. Well, should I say one of the cities that never sleep? Well, yeah, except me. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, we've got our dear guest sitting here waiting in the wings, and she uh, has been very good about not laughing at my stupidity. So, um, <laughs> beautiful smile though, but um, <laughs> not laughing at my stupidity. But anyway, before we get started, uh, the few housekeeping notes: this Tripcast three hundred and sixty podcast is available pretty much any place you can find a podcast, whether it's Apple, uh, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon, we're everywhere. But the absolute best place to check us out is on our website at tripcast360.com. We try to upload a new show pretty much every Monday. Uh, This one will actually be uploaded on Tuesday this time, uh, which is tomorrow. So um, please uh, check us out, like, subscribe, follow, hit up your friends. If you have any ideas for a um, a show that you would like to hear us produce or have a guest on, uh, you can easily do that by sending us an email directly to contact at tripcast360.com. The only caveat we have is that it has some sort of tangential interest in travel, tourism, and entertainment. Other than that, Mm -hmm. you're wide open to sending us whatever. That's right. And uh, we've also got some social media stuff. Dave, hit them up. And we know you're on social media. This is for folks listening to this program. Uh, the numbers reflect that assumption, really. <laughs> well, we're right there with you. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And while you're at it, if you find value in this show, we'd appreciate it if you simply just tell a friend about the show. We would love it. Well, we absolutely would love it. And our website, by the way, is undergoing a transformation as we speak. Um, a lot of the people we've had on our show before are authors. We actually are profiling their books on our homepage, and you can actually buy them directly from our website. Uh, we have a couple of other really big announcements coming up in a couple of weeks about some other changes to our site, which I think you will absolutely love. But we're going to uh, zip our lips for now until we uh, finish putting <laughs> the deals together. But uh, um, yeah, this is going to be an exciting time for us, especially as we approach the holiday season. So without further ado, Let's get Melissa Noel in here. She is an award-winning journalist, television host, and media entrepreneur. She is an internationally recognized Caribbean diaspora leader with proven impact at the intersections of media, sustainable travel, and social advocacy. She is known for her dynamic content that consistently highlights underreported stories for outlets, including the Huffington Post, a place I used to write for, Essence, One Caribbean TV, NBC News, Caribbean Beat Magazine, Lonely Planet, and ABC News. You can learn more about Melissa on her website, melissanoel.com. And I trust me, when you go through her site, you will not be disappointed. Melissa, welcome to TripCast 360. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Welcome, 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 Melissa. Um, Just just to let you know, Michael, and to let our guests know, um, I've known Melissa a very long time. I've always admired her. I've I've always admired her hard work. And I was so happy when she accepted the invitation, we... Melissa, we did talked. you pay for this? <laughs> <laughs> not at all, not at all. Oh, wow, that I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> we talk about a couple subjects that maybe we'll discuss. Um, uh, destination diaspora, 
how travel has changed and the backstory to festivals and why festivals are so important. And as I digest the three of those topics, they're all, I don't want to say they're each one is a mouthful. So I was sort of thinking maybe the way we should frame this program is that we, we discuss destination diaspora. We touch a little bit on tra- how travel has changed and then we touch on the festivals. But you know what? If each one is a mouthful, I guess that suggests that we should have Melissa back for uh, how travel has changed and maybe have her back for the festivals. You know, and we can sort of give a tease by asking some questions on the other two subjects. Yeah, we, we didn't tell her we were going to have her back yet, but if she doesn't come back, I'm coming out to kidnap you, so you have no excuse. Whoa, okay. <laughs> wow. so, Consider yourself kidnapped. <laughs> but with that in mind, uh, M- Melissa, we, we'll talk about destination diaspora. I looked up the term, the dictionary term of the diaspora, and it comes from an ancient Greek word meaning to scatter about. And that's exactly what the people of a diaspora do. They scatter from their homeland to places across the globe, spreading their culture as they go. But it's much more than culture, isn't it? Um, the diaspora for a very long time has been known to send back remittances to their families at home and so on. So could you, so, so could you, could you define the term diaspora the way you see it? Yeah, for sure. So definitely uh, what you mentioned about, you know, people scattering across the globe from, you know, from wherever their their homeland origin is to another place is that, you know, textbook definition. But of course, also the diaspora are the people who take their culture, their customs, uh, their festivals, their language, their teachings, that kind of thing. And they take it from their homeland and wherever they may now be in the world, they bring a part of that with them and they contribute then to that new society or new place that they are now in. And we see how that culture then takes shape elsewhere, but still holds really key elements that you see um, throughout the world. So the Caribbean diaspora, for example, um, you know, if you're not in the region anymore, you're part of the diaspora, but you see that the, the culture, the food, the music, the languages are then taken with you, you know, throughout the world. So you have Caribbean people here in the New York City area, you have your West Indian Day, you know, carnival, or you might have carnival in Miami, you have those kind of things, people bring their those things with them to still celebrate that culture. And I think uh, what we see and what's so beautiful and and why I like to highlight these stories is that we show that even within people who may be from the same country or same region, there are differences. Um, there's beauty, there's different cultures. And I want people to be able to, to see that, understand that and celebrate that. I saw, uh, I saw a, a, a recent survey that suggests that 90% of the Caribbean diaspora wants to engage deeper within the region. Um, represent a significant untapped potential for economic development. Can you can you speak to that? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, and one of the things that that made me think about when you said it is that desire to give back um, to home, right? But not just in the sense of necessarily, let's say, sending barrels or 
sending money, you know, in the, the normal remittances form. I think people want to invest. People want to connect with businesses, own businesses, support businesses. People want to um, invest in, in the private sector, do things in tourism. But what I've often found, and I've seen this, you know, for myself um, as a first generation Guyanese American, is sometimes you don't necessarily feel that welcome. Or you don't necessarily know how to go about getting it done. And what are the avenues or the hoops you may have to jump through when you're really just trying to uh, support home in a way that goes beyond, you know, sending something that will just help for now. You want to do things with longevity. So I think the desire is there, especially from millennials, um, that we want to give back. We want to engage. We want to do business. Um, and we also like for myself in media, I want to do more things in the media landscape and the travel landscape uh, because the interest, not only is the interest there, but the desire to visit, to connect, to do cultural exchanges. I get calls all the time for people who are like, listen, next time you go in Guyana, I want to come with you. Like, I don't want to go with this random group. Like, I want to go with you. I want to experience all the local spots you go to. I want some good soca. I want to know where to get the best Korean chow mein. Like, I want those things. And it's like, <laughs> it's really interesting, but it's also like, yeah, people aren't looking for that. The cookie cutter model is dead. Like, and whatever was left of it, I think COVID even, you know, beat that down even further because now not only do people want, you know, the they want to be safe, of course, and they want more intimate experiences, but they definitely don't want the same old, same old. It's like, what do you have now? You've had all this time to kind of revamp or think uh, beyond the norm. What are you giving me now? And how can I experience this like a local would experience this or somebody from this culture? So I think that's what I've seen and I appreciate. And, and those are the experiences that travelers from, in my opinion, really, really want to have and continue to ask about. But even as they travel back to their place of birth, the spending power, they have got significant spending power. And I'm surprised very often that other Caribbean destinations don't target the diaspora here, here, here in North America. Yeah, and I think that it's been a, a, a greatly missed opportunity uh, by Caribbean countries and not targeting. Um, some have done it. I'm not going to say some have not, but as in overall, it's a missed opportunity to really target your diaspora market who they're coming home anyway. You're going right. to see your mother, your father, sister, auntie, cousin, somebody. You're going to do it anyway. You're sending home barrels. You're probably going for a month. You might have land like my family does that you're, you know, you're working on or you want to keep in the family. And you, again, you want to invest in local business, local enterprise. You may actually own a business, but if people aren't speaking directly to you, you sometimes feel like, okay, you're in this silo over here working, but it'd be great if you felt like you had some kind of incentive that was targeting you as part of the diaspora, or even some of these um, experiences, right? There's so many people in the diaspora when they go home, it's literally to sit, you know, by such and such house, have a drink or two, go take care of what you need to take care of. And a month is gone and you're back instead of going out to explore and enjoy the things that other people come to your country to do. So I've seen more of a, a interest, um, especially amongst millennials. Like I am not going home to like, love you, Auntie Pam, love you, Auntie Gloria, but I'm not coming just sit down in the, in the living room. <laughs> I want to come 
and have a good time. I want to go out and do things. And I want to go to the places I never got to as a child, right? And not through anyone's fault, but it's like, we didn't do this then. I want to do this now. I want to be able to tell other people common experience. So for me, I went to Guyana to visit my family in April, my first trip since the pandemic began. And um, things I never did as a child, I've never gone to Kaichor Falls, tallest single, mm. a single uh, drop waterfall in the world. In the world. And I've wanted to go for so long, but you're all, oh, girl, that small plane, don't do that, don't do this. And I'm like, I'm doing this. Um, and I'm so happy I did it. And now I have people coming to me saying, how'd you do it? How much does it cost? You know, what was the experience like? Tell me about being in, in you know, in that region uh, where you have indigenous communities in Guyana, which is so beautiful. And I'm like, you know, we need to do more of this. And I see the, the, um, the deep interest from people who want to go and have those experiences that they either in the diaspora community that they didn't have as a child or right. they just haven't gotten to as yet, but they want to. You know, one of the things that has always bothered me about the Caribbean islands and countries within the region who don't market directly to those of the diaspora who live in the United States, for example, is because I think they're trying to please a different audience instead of Agreed. the people from the diaspora. And what they're missing is exactly what you just brought up. The messenger for the cultural aspects of the Caribbean could be delivered by those in the United States who are coming back home to visit. Like you've gone exactly. places in Guyana where you've never been to and you're from there. Um, you know, and I, I think they're missing a golden opportunity to deliver that message. I mean, we all got friends. Dave's from, uh, you know, the Caribbean as well. He's got friends who cross all social, economic and racial groups. He can deliver the message for Barbados better than anybody else to a, a, a group of tourists who are new. Exactly. And so that's what I have seen has been such a great missed opportunity that I hope now with, you know, everything that's taken place in the last year and a half has been a great lesson that you not only because so many Caribbean countries had to then rely on their diaspora and their regional markets and starting regional campaigns and diaspora campaigns that, to be honest, should have existed already, you know, uh, should and should have been marketed at the same level that you market to your, your typical North American tourist, right, um, who may or may not already be invested in travel there, whereas your diaspora is literally built in interest and desire already. And then you just got to get me to the next step, which is taking advantage of some of these local tourism um, excursions and opportunities that I just may not have looked at before. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm in total agreement with you. And I, I've never understood that. And for those of you from the Caribbean who are actually listening to this podcast, the African-American portion of the travel spend in the United States is around 150 to 200 billion with a B dollars a, with a year. B. With a B. A I'm year. so glad you brought that up because that is a market that has been ignored yep. um, in the travel market to a, to a detriment to so many. And I only saw that shift really like we started to see like the black travel movement coming on board. Maybe I was I started to see a lot of things like seven, eight years ago. And some of the black travel groups came on board and it's like, I, and I loved it because they said, you know what, you're not going to pay attention to us, but we know our spending power. We know our value and we're going to do this without you. We're going to go ahead and make these things happen. And they did. And the black travel groups 
have, you know, grown in such a way that it's just like a valuable lesson, I think, for the entire industry and a great mm -hmm. model for like, if you like, if you, if you won't pay attention to us, we're going to do it ourselves. And then we saw, um, we actually saw uh, the year of return 2019 with, with Ghana. I actually went to Ghana in 2019 for that experience, mm -hmm. how they specifically and intentionally marketed to the African-American uh, market. And then you're just your African diaspora groups in the Caribbean and, uh, you know, in Europe and other parts of the world and how successful that was because you made people feel like it was for them. You showed right. an interest in them. And what they did is, I think, like a model for for so many to follow. And what I see with the, especially the African-American market is a huge opportunity for the Caribbean to really pick up there because you have so many people who have roots there that may not have been able to connect them yet or trace them. Interest in different things, especially when we think about countries like Barbados or the U.S. Virgin Islands and and in that those places that they want to connect, but they want to actually feel like people care enough to include them. Yeah. So I'm I'm just interested to see how that's going to play out. I know Barbados was set to have their We Gathering um, year long event in 2020, and they had to turn things virtually because of COVID. But I'm interested to see like once things do pick up again, if that will come back you know, in, in the in-person way that they have meant for it to be, to really engage a diaspora and then people who are just interested in a particular country um, outside of that. With vaccine hesitancy so high within the Caribbean, do you see a role for the Caribbean, that the Caribbean diaspora can play to, to sort of educate? Because most of the stuff, I believe, most of the reason for the hesitancy, not just the Caribbean, but globally, is all the misinformation that is on social media. Do you see a role by Caribbean diaspora influencers, a role that they can play? Yeah, I definitely think that there's a role for Caribbean diaspora influencers to help fight that misinformation. But I think that the problem we are seeing is that the misinformation is spreading faster than you know the accurate information and so by the time you're trying to catch up and do the damage control you already lost a segment of the population that you were trying to convince so i'm not necessarily sure yet where we're gonna like catch up to that it's definitely an uphill battle and one that we will continue to uh, see but i think it's really critical especially for our influencers whether they're in music or you know they are entertainers in in any other way actors what have you or there are travel influencers that when they're utilizing their platform it's not that you you can't be hesitant about the vaccine you that you are not allowed to ask questions or want more information right. that's fine but when you utilize your platform in a way that's spreads misinformation like you are doing such a, a terrible disservice to so many people because then it creates this firestorm and you can't even catch up to what's true from from not true and we've been seeing this unfold over and over again because someone decides to post something on ig or post something on twitter and then it takes on a life of its own so i think that's where we're kind of um it's hard to kind of keep up fact from fiction or take misinformation and like catch up to like what is true and what's not true just because of how quick things are. So it's for me, it's not that you can't have questions about it 
um, that you can't be concerned about. I think we all have been concerned um, about it, um, getting your, your vaccine or not getting your vaccine or when to do it, what's right for you in your, your personal health conditions. But I think we still have to be responsible, especially our influencers. If you have those questions, ask those questions, but ask them within your own you know, social circle or ask them to reputable people, but posing, like throwing the, the doubt out there in social media it takes on a life of its own that you can't then reel in. And that's the problem. Yes. This is a stay, stay away from that singer who shall remain nameless. I was just going to mention the name. Okay. So, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to put you in the spot, Melissa, but um, you know, listen, Bob, Bob Marley had a song that says who the cap fit, let them wear it. Let so, them wear it. Let that's what we're going to do right now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> why, why, why would I take medical advice from a singer rapper? Hmm. Somebody's got to explain that to me. And uh-huh. I think I think that's part of the problem we're seeing. Like we are we we've come to a point where, um, you know, celebrities hold more weight than doctors do or yeah. scientists do. And it's like, yeah. How? How did we get here? Um, and that answer is still yet to be seen. Like, how did we get here? Well, I, I think one of the reason one of the ways we got here, unfortunately, is the medium that we're currently speaking to one another on called the Internet. Uh, it allows for unfettered access to nonsense. And maybe it's because I'm older. Maybe it's because I read a lot or maybe it's because, uh, you know, we're all all three of us are college graduates. I mean, there's something in there that just allows us to absorb it, the information and, and separate fact from fiction. But for low information folks who don't spend a lot of time absorbing media content or who don't understand science, it is easy to manipulate people today. They've been doing it since the time immemorial and not just with COVID. It's been happening throughout the history of mankind. Yeah. And 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 even, you know, something simpler than science. Right. It's even like, you know, you see someone post someone might post a paragraph, let's say, on Instagram talking about a particular topic. And literally, it it could say, you know, the sky is orange, you know, and it'll say and it'll have these facts to back it up. Did you know that the sky is orange and they've been telling us it's it's been blue for all these years? They've been lying to us. Here's this, this and this. And then like you literally see people not taking the time to just like go and check this out or say, hey, that doesn't make sense. And they just take it and run with it. And then it's like shared 5000 times and you can't rein it back in. No. And I see that happen all the time. I mean, if the United States government can't figure it out yet, uh, the Lord help us for the rest of us trying to figure out how to make those inroads, because you're right. I think it's just too much information. It's information overload. Um, yes, you know, and, you know, you, you know, we all got phones now that, you know, 15 years ago, your phone couldn't play video. Now it's playing everything under the sun. And, you know, you've got more access to information than ever before. And it's just. You get swamped with this stuff all the time. I mean, Dave and I had these conversations all the time because I used to work in the news media full time and Dave's a news junkie. So we have conversations sometimes an hour and a half a day just trying to digest the garbage that's coming out of the the news media's mouth about stuff that they, quite frankly, have no clue what they're talking about half the time. And it drives me crazy. So enough of my soapbox. Off the culture. (laughs) Um, I don't want to paint the cultural aspect of our conversation is something that's indigenous to just Africa or uh, uh, the African diaspora. For example, when I go to Europe, for example, 
I want to know what's going on in Paris and Greece and Italy exactly. cultural wise. Culturally. I, I, yeah. But sometimes I think when we have people who come to the Caribbean uh, from uh, outside the region, that aspect gets ignored. It's like, okay, I'm just going to the Caribbean to sit on the beach. I'm just going to the Caribbean to drink some rum. I'm not going to the Caribbean to get into culture. Yet you go to Europe and you get into their culture. That's right. I agree. Or it's like you've seen one, you've seen them, you've seen them all. And that is totally not true. Every single country throughout the region is has a, is a unique and distinct mm-hmm. culture of foods. Um, languages even depending on if you're in the French Caribbean, English speaking Caribbean, Spanish speaking Caribbean. And I, when I hear that, um, statement made by people, I cringe sometimes because I'm like, wow, this is like, you've dismissed an entire region because you haven't taken the time to engage with the people, the culture, the differences. It's just like, okay, well, beautiful beaches, jet skis. Okay. I can go home now. And that is, that's so not the only things you can do you know, when you visit. The diaspora used to be first generation, folks who left their homeland. Um, In recent years, the diaspora is more the descendants of the first first generation. Do Do you still see that same connection to the Caribbean from second and third generations as you see from first generations, from the older folks who came here the first time, no family, anything. They just mm-hmm. came and they led the way. I would say yes. So I, I'm one of those people, right? So as I mentioned, I'm a dual citizen, right? I'm a, I'm a, a Guyanese American. My parents came here, you know, and created this life here. And um, I, I was born here. However... I've always grown up with what I like to say, feet in two worlds, right? I always feel like I got the best of both worlds. I'm really thankful for their sacrifices, but also for the opportunities that were provided to me being here, but still having that life there. Um, what I've seen a lot of, and I think I've really been proud of seeing this, is seeing the second, third generation uh, millennials who are not only seeking to give back and get involved, but like actively uh, working to know and 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 engage with their parents homeland you know their their ancestry like actively doing the work to do so whether it's working on like business projects there whether it's personal journeys there um you know going back to do family histories work on documentaries whatever it is they are actively engaged in this what i what I have seen that has made me sad is that pushback sometimes that's just like okay well you're yeah. not from here so yeah. what do you why why do you care? And I think that um, for instance, Jamaica does an excellent job of engaging their diaspora. They don't care if you're sixth generation Jamaican. You have some connection to that country and you want to be involved and engaged. That consulate is going to engage you, uh, work with you, help you find out how to um, engage in the business community there. Like they do an exceptional job of not only keeping those linkages but also that national pride that exists is something I feel like is a model for people all over the world Um, because they recognize not only is it a source of pride for people who are second, third, fourth generation, but it's also literally a part of you that for a lot of people, um, especially a lot of people I meet who may have like one parent from the region and another parent from another country, they often feel like there's a missing link to their identity. 
And being able to have that connection where they feel like there's there's diaspora programs, investment programs, and even cultural programs to come and visit, right? Like you're engaging me to come and visit I mean, spend time there. That's a missing identity link for so many people that will not only fill a void, but also keep them engaged in this country for years to come. And I think there really has to be, I think it's really important to have some focus on that. And that's why I brought up Ghana, because I think that what they tapped into is that longing for that missing link of someone's identity that then will turn into the spending, will turn into the the trips, the visits, the investment, all those things. But first, you got to let me know that you care about me. Um, And that's what I think people want. And now I think we're seeing, now that the Black travel groups have such a, a stronghold um, and we've been, you know, grounded for so long due to COVID, I think we're going to see a boom when it comes to uh, these travel groups kind of getting back on board. And I think it would be of great importance to the Caribbean region and, and other regions to take, take a page out of their book and really engage people that have a connection already to the region. You just got to get them to the next step. Show me you care about me. They will come. Literally. Yeah. Oh, they will come. At that, your point about Jamaica is so well taken. Jamaica, in my opinion, might be the only country in the entire Caribbean that actually exports Jamaica to the rest of the world. To the Where, rest of the world. Their culture, their music. There isn't, a, there isn't an American on this planet who hasn't heard of Bob Marley. Listen, track and field, track and field. Track and field. Yeah, but one, two, three, one, two, yeah. three. That's the new area called for Jamaica. We all Thank know you. It. We all know it now. But it, 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 to me, it seems like such an easy thing to figure out. But Jamaica seems to be the only one that has got it figured out. A little bit to a lesser extent, maybe Puerto Rico. But Jamaica has got it figured out. They export their culture to everybody else, yeah. and then by extension, everybody else comes. Every time I go to Jamaica, I'm a Jamaican, by the way. Um, uh, I've, I've been there so many times now that that's what my driver who picks me up all the time. You're a Jamaican. You're welcome to go. And he, he took me every place within their culture so much so that I'm actually writing a screenplay about one of my experiences in Jamaica. Um, because now I've become an extension of Jamaica just by I me writing that. a movie about it. I hope you're not like one of my videographers. I took him to the Bahamas right. once and someone asked him, where are you from? He said, I'm from Jamaica. And they said, you're not from Jamaica with that accent. He said, yes, I'm from Jamaica, Queens. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Your stand-up career just ended. Um, <laughs> Your stand-up career is Listen, l- listen, I tell the jokes. I don't interpret them, all right? Oh, okay. I just tell them. Right. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So, 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 so if you get kicked out of one of your stand-up places in New York, I'll know. Um, I'm going to uh, touch, skip ahead a little bit, because I know Dave mentioned this earlier. But this is kind of, give me your 360-degree view of the changes you've seen in travel uh, just in the last five years? I mean, I understand COVID, but you touched on this earlier about the difference between like the millennial group and maybe our generation and even the younger generation coming up, because there are certain things that like our generation, they just wanted to go someplace and take a vacation. Millennials want to get into your culture, which I've been screaming about for 30 years, but for some reason I can't get my generation to get involved in the culture. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things that I have seen, which I'm actually excited about. And that that first back to that first point is that people want to experience 
a destination like a local. They don't want your the cookie cutter brochure. They they really do not want that kind of experience. They want to be able to feel like they got to tap into this culture for a week, two weeks, however long that stay is, and can really take something away with it and from it and bring that back home and share it and, and then have other people come and experience it too. So what they look for are either locals or local groups or people that have some kind of connection to that place or by extension to that place that will help them get that kind of experience. And also um, for especially like, I would say black millennial travelers, they want to know that they're going to feel comfortable, right? Like racial discrimination is real. Um, it, it, it is what it is, right? We can't deny that it exists. So they want to know that they're going to also feel comfortable in that environment. And like, what, how are they going to um, be accepted, treated and, and received um, in a particular place? So that's why they seek out specific things. So a lot of your black travelers, yes, we want to, and I think one of the misconceptions that I've seen that I want to also talk about is black people that come to visit don't just want to do like your history and culture, you know, tours that may have to do with what may have happened here years ago, right? Amen. We don't just want to do the slave stuff and we don't want to just see those museums. We, yes, that's an important part of a trip. But we also like we, you know, people, black people ski, they sail, they want to, they want to go scuba dive, climbing, yep. scuba diving. Like I want to go to the underwater sculpture park too. Like we do all of those things. And so um, I think that's a really, really important thing. Don't just pitch your, you know, history and culture tours to the to the I guess like black groups or those people or those people of, of certain backgrounds. Give a ensure that you're giving that 360 view for everybody. Everybody should have a little bit of this, not just yeah. this group or the other. I'm going to tell a horrific story about what happened to me in the Caribbean. Dave's heard this, but I'm not going to mention the country. I'm just going to leave Got the country it. out because I'm, I'm trying not to put them down because I see you like going there. They invited, this is going back to 2015, 2016, pre-pandemic. They invited a group of six black journalists to this particular island group. A month before, they had invited a group of white journalists only. So they had us, they already segregated us by groups just with that alone. Right. Then I find out later that they took the black groups to all the places that they thought would be uh, good for black culture. The white groups never saw what we, what we saw. And then vice versa, we never saw what never they saw. What saw. They saw. And I'm like, and we we pulled the minister of tourism on the side and we lit into him. I told him this, that this is As a you should. really effing way bad to promote your destination to a group of black journalists. And then I find out later on that all the white journalists got invited to a festival four months later and the black folks, none of us got invited. It was just like ha having, it's like I shouldn't have to explain to a destination that uh, has that type of a budget, that that type of segregation looks terrible. It not only is it looks doesn't look terrible, it's wrong. And not only you're doing a disservice to those journalists, to the readers, and you are just perpetuating that kind of segregation and mentality. And so for me, that's been a big part of what I do as a like as a media consultant, right? Outside of writing my stories, it's like I, I like to work with um, destinations to tell them to consult and say, this is this is an absolute no. You need to do, you can do better here. Here's how. 
And that stemmed from a lot of those kinds of experiences, yeah. either being the one, you know, black journalist covering something or being specifically pitched certain kinds of stories that I knew were only being pitched to me because he wanted the quote unquote black angle. And right. that's not okay. Right. Like, I can report on anything like give me the opportunity to do that. Let me tell you what we are looking to do. Don't give me this like filtered down version of what you think it is I'm capable of doing. And that has been such a misstep that I've seen in the travel industry across the board. And in my experiences, I've, I left network news about eight years ago now. And I started, you know, doing solo travel in the Caribbean region. And when I started noticing those things, I was like, is it me? Am I, maybe I'm being, you know, you try to, you question yourself a little bit and then you say, no, like this is, this is a problem or this is an issue. And uh, I need to speak up about it because I know other people are experiencing this. Yep. And one, one of the things that I had to do was like you said, you have to tell, you have to talk to people, like not be afraid to like say, Hey, this is what's going on here. One. And then two, like fostering stronger relationships with some of the some of the PR companies that are hired. Sometimes it's like it's, it's a brick wall. And other times you're able to make some good connections in there where you're able to say, hey, what, what's up with this? Or how, how come we, we saw this group get this or, you know, versus that one? But it takes time. And I know all, everyone doesn't have that time. But I, for me, it was really important. Like if I'm going to have longevity in this section, like this portion of my career and, and try to make some impacts to do that. So it, it's been, it's been a task. Um, I, I think it's important to do. Can you speak to the value of not fostering that type of mentality? I think that the value in that um, is priceless because you will get to, you, you will allow the report reporters, the travel writers, whomever it is, to give a holistic view of your destination and highlight things for audiences in a way that you may not have thought about as a destination. But if you try to filter down how they see ex or experience your destination, you are literally cutting out opportunities for them to highlight the very things that might make it stand out to their readers, that might, you know, turn into those visits to your destination just because you're seeing things through a really outdated lens, a mm -hmm. truly outdated yeah. lens. Yeah. So yeah. you're you're literally setting yourself up for leaving money on the table and you're setting yourself up for um, honestly, like leaving culture on the table in some ways because you're not allowing people to get a full experience. Yeah. And I think that's, if, if anything, like that's, that's ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, a ridiculous yeah. way to go about trying to promote your destination and what it has to offer, because you're not showing me exactly what you're, you have to offer when you do that. You're limiting me and you shouldn't do that. Yeah. And you should, Dave, Dave and I had a guest on the show, I'm thinking last year and she's a white travel journalist. Very, very good. She's excellent writer. She's one of our best friends as it's turned out. But she went to the Caribbean, to one of the islands, which I will not mention. She had a completely different experience than Dave and I had, completely different. And we wound up telling her stuff about this particular island that she didn't know. And yeah. I, I know when we got off the air, she apologized because she said, it seems like you guys know more about this than I do. <laughs> that's, be that's because you were giving one trip. And we knew about your trip, but you didn't know about our about trip. Ours, right. And it's it's a missed opportunity on both sides. Like not only it's not just the you know black people that need to know about 
certain things or uh, like everybody needs to have, as you, as you said, that 360 view, you need to know about everything. And then you can be able to discern or pick and choose from that. But if you don't know, you're missing opportunities to highlight things that may be really valuable to the kind of coverage that you provide. And that's just, you know, it just, it just sets up this kind of precedent that continues to leave things on the table perpetually. Okay. Yeah, agreed. I'm going to give you an opportunity to put that big smile on your own face. You're the first guest we've had on this show, I believe, from Guyana. Really? So I want you to talk about Guyana. What is there? Tell us about the culture, the food. Uh, you've already told us about the highest waterfall in the world. I want to see that smile on your face <laughs> translated into that languaging. <laughs> <laughs> well, wonderful. So what I love so much about talking to people about Guyana is the diversity. Guyana is known as the land of six peoples because we have such a great um, uh, diversity of people there from our indigenous people, our Afro-Guyanese, our Indian Guyanese, and so on and so forth. And I think that what makes Guyana so unique is how those cultures come together. So whether yeah. you're coming to Guyana to experience the food that you could do anything from like your seven, your seven curry or your curry and roti that comes from our Indian influence to your, you could get your like um, your chow mein that comes from our Chinese, our Asian influence in our culture. You could get our Creole food, which is an African influence. You see it in the food. Um, definitely. You could get it kind of, all six six nationalities and experiences on a plate, like we like to say. And I absolutely love that about it. But then when it comes to what you see, um, Guyana, it has, there's more rainforest um, than anything, right? On the, in the uh, interior of the country. Most people, when they go and visit, they go to Georgetown, which is the capital. And it's beautiful. There's the hustle and bustle like any other city. And you get to do a lot. But I feel like the beauty is really in the interior. You take the time. You get either get on the speedboat or you take the ferry over. You go into the Essequibo region. You go to you, you go and experience like Guyana means land of many waters. Right. And there are so many waterfalls to see. Kaichur is just one. It is the tallest one. But that's just one of the things you can see going into the indigenous settlements, seeing the the going and seeing where the different rivers meet, whether it's the Essequibo, the Cayuni, uh, the Mazaruni rivers meet, going into some of the fishing villages. The beauty is really in the interior. I mean. When you see the the rainforest and you go into some of the jungles, it is truly pristine and untouched. Like there's so many species of of birds and animals, like things that I have. I was like, gonna say I was gonna say don't say snakes, Dave, and I don't do snakes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you get an experience to be one with nature in a way that um, I don't think you can really get anywhere else. It does take some time, right? Guyana's not your like go and sit by the beach kind of destination. But if you're really looking for like an echo adventure and you really want to experience what that's like um, in a place that, because tourism was never like this big, like a huge thing for Guyana. It's now recently become more on board for tourism. But what I love about it is that when you get to go and experience, like, let's say I, I went, for instance, I went to Arrow Point Lodge and we had to go into an Amerindian settlement to get there and just going along and seeing like, you know, 
a beautiful indigenous children just jumping off the landings and going into the water, having a swim, going in. Like, we couldn't go into the settlement this time because of COVID, right? You want to keep everyone safe. But, you know, you, we went in there, you, you, we, we kayaked, we did mountain biking, they have night excursions where you could see all of, the, all of the animals. Yes, including snakes. Sorry. But, um, <laughs> but I love that, that mix, right? You get the mix from, you don't just get the hustle and bustle of a big city. You get that pristine, beautiful, vibrant uh, part of nature, but all over the country. And they're so, Guyana is not an island, right? but there are 365 islands to enjoy. So one for every day that you can experience. And some of my favorites are Sloth Island, Parrot Island. Um, and I just love going across to Essequibo where um, I have a lot of family and just going there and enjoying some of the resorts that are there along the river. So I think it would be an experience for someone, for people that want to enjoy several different cultures at once, kind of melded together. And then also like a really good like eco adventure experience. I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought up the eco adventure because a lot of people don't think about that. You just talk about your about taking the speedboat. Yeah. And I want to set it up because I want you to explain the whole concept of this speedboat, the size <laughs> of the speedboat, and the waters that this speedboat <laughs> traveling. I was in Guyana and they told me they're going to take us on a speedboat. We drove to the marina where the speedboats are. And so I'm looking. Parika. You probably went to Parika. This, now, this, this one was on the Demerara side. Okay. Yeah, but, but anyhow, they take me and say we go on the speedboat. I get there and I'm looking for a speedboat. I don't see a speedboat. So I'm looking at this big body of water that looks like an ocean. And I see this little tiny boat. And I looked at the size of the boat and I looked at the size of the body of the water. And I looked at the size of the body of water. I said, no, 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 I am not going on that. So then I saw some video of people on this little tiny boat. Michael, I will let Melissa explain that whole experience. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I'll say. I'll say the speedboat is definitely not for the faint of heart um, at all. Uh, Because when you're going along those waters, it'll it'll literally, it gets you from... <laughs> it gets you across the Essequibo about 25 minutes, but the water is often choppy, can be rough, and it is the speedboats are small. So it's not what, what you might be thinking as you may typically be used to. So if you think that you might be one of those people that might get motion sickness or it may not be for you, we always say get on the ferry. The ferry does take two hours though, right? But I tell people, try it out if you're game. I understand that it's not for for everybody, but I know it's not for everybody because the water is choppy. So being on that up and down, up and down, people do get sick. And there's, I would say, you can get about because they have some newer ones. But you you can it's it's not like you can get a whole bunch of people into them. So it's pretty small. And when you are looking at how big the body of water is, definitely you're like, how are we getting across here? But people do it every day, all day, multiple times a day. They don't even think about it. Michael, it's about the size. It looks like the size of a mid-sized car trying to to cross the Atlantic. I got shoes bigger than that. (laughs) (laughs) My my feet are bigger than that. (laughs) And the water water is so choppy that the boat is actually coming out of the water. When it's bouncing on the water. It bounces up. It bounces up out of the water. Yes, that's very I'm telling you. I'm telling you, Michael. It's an experience. 
I will tell you that it's an experience. Uh, oh, uh, so all right. So, did, you, so Dave, what did you do? I went back to my hotel. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I went back. Get- I went back to my hotel and and you know ordered the gin and tonic and I just sat and had some fun. Did you try to go back? Like, did you try to do the ferry across to Essequibo at all to get off at Supnam? No, no, okay. no. <laughs> no, because the ferry itself is your, like, big, properly sized ferry that you can get, you know, people's cars go onto the ferry. They might be bringing, you know, other things to sell in another part of the country. So it's full-size ferry, several levels with the cargo on the bottom, that kind of thing. There's a couple things Dave doesn't do. Merry-go-rounds and boats. He's never he's he's never been on a cruise. Nah. Ever. What? Cruises are not for you, Dave. You know, I'm beginning to have a change of heart, you know. Maybe I will at some point, you know. As I get younger, I'm, you know, I'm thinking more about it. I understand. Sometimes it takes <laughs> the younger years for you to just kind of put things in perspective. Oh Lord, this is getting deep <laughs> up in here. <laughs> Logistically. How easy is it to get there? We're on the West Coast, so I don't expect us to get anywhere easy going towards the yeah. Caribbean. But you're you're in you know, on the East Coast. How easy it is is it for you to get there in terms of air travel and things like that? Oh, yes. it's easy. It it's it's become a lot easier, and definitely mm-hmm. over the last couple of years, because uh, typically you know you have your direct flights from New York directly to Guyana. But the problem that we often had was there weren't a lot of, um, wasn't a lot of airlines. The airlift was an issue. So you had Caribbean airlines and you had, I think, I believe it was, um, was it Eastern airlines for a while, but there wasn't, uh, like variety. So they often, the prices were often very high to get there, but now, which has been so exciting. American now flies to Guyana. I think JetBlue um, goes JetBlue, to JetBlue, yes. Yeah. I took one of the first JetBlue flights to Guyana in April. They they were, you know, they started this April, um, you know, after the after kind of raining in things with COVID. So those options and that having those those options available for airlift has made prices more competitive. My flight was about 560 round trip, which was like something I could That's never good. get uh, for Guyana before. I was used to paying 800 plus, almost $1,000 to get tickets prior to then. So to have those options direct um, yeah. are amazing. And then, of course, with American Airlines having such a huge hub in Miami, you have the, you know, Miami direct to Guyana or you can get, you know, do New York direct or sometimes it might have the stopover in Miami, depending. But that has opened up huge avenues for people to get there. Now, when you're in Guyana, I would say being in Georgetown, being in the capital and the surrounding um, areas there. It's pretty easy. You know, you get your taxi ride, you might get in the maxi, that kind of thing. But getting to parts in the interior really takes some planning. Like, you know, a flight to Kaichor Falls, for example, it's about an hour flight. Um, the cost can be prohibitive for some. It's about 200, 200 230 US for that, that flight. And because Guyana, um, because they don't necessarily always have, you know, a group of tourists coming in, if you don't have, I think it was, if we didn't have 12 people to fill the flight going to Kaichor, we wouldn't have been able to go. So um, it's the kind of thing where you have to plan and you want to plan with a group that will be all in to go to some of these places because not only is it going to take a considerable amount of time to get to some of these beautiful places in the interior, you're going to have to plan logistics and, and, and the money for it because of the volume isn't there yet. Uh, when it comes to 
tourism, I would say. But I feel like it's it's definitely the pickup is there. M- Melissa, I'm just mad at you for not taking me. <laughs> See, but I, you know, I didn't know you yet. Like, well, you can't, I didn't but know you know, you. Dave, Dave should have been tooting my horn by now. <laughs> you have to get but through you know, me, man. You have to get through me. He's your gatekeeper. But the good thing is, I have been doing some more work in the in the in the tourism sector, but the private sector uh, of tourism and. You know, just back to some of those travel groups, people are really interested in going there and kind of having my perspective and some of the travel work that I've done with some really great tour companies there. So stay tuned for that. I'm working on some things. So hopefully be able to, to bring you a curated experience, experiences for trips to Guyana soon. OK, well, you got your two best friends here, so don't forget us. I won't. I mean, you're like <laughs> first on the list. You're first OK, on the list. All right, you got a deal. <laughs> Talk to us about the backstory to some of the favorite festivals and why festivals are so important, um, not only from a cultural standpoint, but from, a, from an economic standpoint for those destinations. Yeah. So when we think about festivals, um, and I'm going to use the Caribbean as an example, festival tourism, not only, uh, oftentimes we look at festivals from their entertainment value. And of course, like you're going to Carnival or you're going, you might go to the St. Patrick's Festival in Montserrat. You might go to a, a food and wine or a beer festival. And that, and so you often think about the entertainment value. But uh, what I often look at, I think what's even become even more clear now because of COVID is the economic value that festivals present for so many places. So I'll use Carnival as an example of a festival that is a huge and important economic driver for many Caribbean countries. They employ thousands of people, not just for the Carnival season, but year round. We're talking costume designers and DJs, promoters, you know, food service uh, providers, hoteliers, just the list goes on and on and on. And so with uh, something like COVID coming on board and canceling most carnivals now for, for two years, and we don't even know what next year is going to look like, the impact has been tremendous because so many people depend on these festivals for their livelihood. So now that impact that they have, um, or that impact that they have, have, have seen from it, uh, people have had to turn to other things or find new ways to engage with people about festivals, but also help them understand that it's not just, as you say, it's not just fet for fet's sake. You're not just right. there partying, just a the party. These are people's livelihoods, their bread and butter that has been lost. And so when you support a festival, not just in the Caribbean, but anywhere, you're supporting the livelihoods of thousands of people. You're keeping families uh, you know, afloat. You're, and you're also contributing to many countries' GDP. Like this really contributes um, for a lot of countries to that. But what I what I found in doing a lot of reporting in the last year about how the, the cultural and creative industries and the region has been impacted, one thing I noticed is that even though we know visitor spend goes up tremendously, visitor arrivals then turned into, you know, foreign exchange spend and, um, you know, what is spent by people through, throughout a particular period, even though we know those things go up and you have a significant um, influx of money. What I saw is that there isn't a documentation isn't widely kept about mm-hmm. what those numbers are, like how much is generated by particular festivals like Carnival. So there are great folks who are working, you know, to whether it's the Carnival Studies Department at the University of the West Indies in Trinidad, uh, the, the Trinidad campus, um, or other other folks. I know the um, there was a there. There are plans by places like I know Grenada, 
Dominica and St. Lucia is going to be presenting uh, what they call the trifecta carnival, where they present mm. the three carnivals of these, you know, unique and distinct carnivals of these three islands under one marketing um, umbrella, uh, giving people the chance to enjoy all three over the course of either three years or maybe all in one year. But then also that important aspect of protecting intellectual property and also getting people to understand that this is value beyond entertainment. So um, I think it's a really major thing for us to understand once festivals do come back on board, that we're not just supporting a promoter or buying a ticket to have a, a great night out or a couple of days, that we're supporting a whole ecosystem um, of jobs and, and people that kind of has residual effects, you know, throughout a whole economy. So um, as things come back on board, I think we're going to see a big change to, to festivals, how they engage people. And I think that the virtual component of festivals will definitely be here to stay or that hybrid experience, which I think yeah. is good. And um, then more people wanting to be engaged in supporting their, let's say, local costume designer, you know, DJ or these our DJs, our our um or are people that that plan and put these things together because they work internationally, right? You're not just working in Trinidad or Barbados or Grenada. You're working with vendors in China. You're working with people in New York. You're working with people in Miami. And with Miami Carnival being the first Caribbean carnival in the diaspora that's going to take place in October, I think it's going to be interesting to see how they, um, how they keep people safe um, what kind of models they use to kind of bring the carnival experience back because we know Caribbean people, you know, you're loving, you like to touch, jump up, you know, have a good time. It's not something that you can necessarily continue to enjoy virtually. So how are they going to make that happen? What kind of model would they present for other people to follow? I know a lot of people will be watching that. And I think it'll be interesting to see how the festival experience may change um, and that festival experience of the future. How are they going to bring it to us now? So I'll be keeping my eyes on that pretty closely. Did your research reveal the economic impact of the festivals um, as it relates to the diaspora, uh, to break it down as it relates to inter-Caribbean travel to a specific destination for, for the festival? And... What impact does, let's say, you know, we're here in New York, we have the Caribbean American Day Parade. What impact does that have in folks wanting to go to the Caribbean and experience it in a specific destination, especially since here in New York, um, I believe Labor Day has about 2 million folks coming for that. And that's a perfect place to showcase what the Caribbean has to offer. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Has has your research revealed the economic impact of that? And and so so that's one of the things that has been quite difficult, right? So there there's a lack of of documentation about the economic numbers in the region, and then when it comes to how that translates, without having those first numbers, you know, um, I haven't found anything that that was show that shows me uh, that relationship as yet, right? And so I think that this experience with the pandemic has shown why that is, I mean, critically important to, to pay attention to that because again, it's not, these festivals are not just for entertainment value. They are in, incredibly important economic drivers for these countries and it's, and their citizens. Um, and 
I don't think that, I think, you know, we, we know there are a lot of people involved, but when you really sit and think about, you know, for example, one mass ban might employ 200 people. And yeah. that might just be, that might just be for things like bar services, food services, security um, on for two days. We're not even talking about the team of designers, um, yeah. the, the management teams that plan the event. You know, you're talking about thousands of people when you're thinking about a medium to large size uh, band that, you know, has the costumes and whatnot when you want to go and play mass in Trinidad or Grenada or what have you. So um, it's a it's a big, big deal. And I think that um, I'll use the trifecta carnival, as I mentioned, as an example, that realization that you have to move beyond um, showing car like carnivals being looked at or festivals being looked at for their entertainment value only and mm-hmm. looking at it from their more of the economic impact so that there would be more of an incentive and a push to uh, quantify on a more consistent basis. Because, you know, you find some numbers here, but you find some numbers over there. You don't necessarily necessarily have the consistency. So that's been the struggle. Um, and I think we are seeing more people not only talk about it, but but push to get the more consistent numbers out there because I, they're needed so people can understand the value. Yeah. And, and just for people who are listening who don't quite get where we're going with these numbers, let's make it analogous to something people understand. And something that I'm intimately familiar with, which is the uh, New Year's Day Rose Bowl Parade in, in Pasadena, California. Nice. Nice. I yeah. guarantee you the city of Pasadena knows every single number of the number of tourists who come in for that parade. Uh, and they know it well in advance. They plan on it. But the other thing that you're actually highlighting is the number of people this parade employs. They start designing these balloons 11 months out. It's a year round thing. So that when you arrive at whatever festival you're going to in the Caribbean or the parade or the Macy's parade where you guys live in New York or whatever, it's done. The idea that we can't get numbers just boggles my mind. I mean, something as easy as like when you you know, fill out your uh, form when you first come into the country, uh, when you're on the plane and they hand you the immigration card. I'm here for the festival. Check mark. So what and what I did see in the research and just talking to, you know, um, some of the like the Carnival Studies Department, for example, at the University of the West Indies is a lot of times cost is um, a prohibitive factor. Um, and being able to not only get the data, but then um, have the the, the trained, uh, you know, uh, the trained staff to actually be able mm-hmm. to take that data and then turn it, you know, take it and and be able to say, this is what we can use from it or pull from that, have that experience to do that. So not only is cost a, a factor, but also training. And that's something that they're really pushing for so that not only can they get data, but consistent data that can be translated across the board. Right. And um, so they're definitely pushing for it. It's something I hope we see sooner rather than later, because it is really, really important for people to, to for for that aspect of it to be um, hot, not only highlighted, but you see mm-hmm. the value that's coming from it that goes beyond, okay, I was entertained. Yeah, see, we're entertained, but hey, here's what this is doing for this economy and why it's why it's important and how your contributions like you know make a difference as well. Right. Yeah, but it also tells you where to invest your marketing dollars later. Exactly. And if you don't know where to invest your marketing dollars, you're you're lost. I mean, right. I you know, I don't know the budgets of half two thirds of the countries. I do know the budgets of several of the larger ones and they're pretty substantial, but they collect data. They know where their dollars are going, even if they send them to the wrong places, which I can always easily argue, at least they have the data. 
least but they have of, the data. Yeah, at least they have the data so they know where to go. So you you know where to spend your marketing dollars. Where are you having the most impact? If you want to open up a new niche audience you haven't reached out to before, aka those of us from the African diaspora who live in the United States, you're not going to know how to find them if you don't even have preliminary data to get you in the front door. And, exactly. and again, some of it is not overly difficult. I mean, start off simple. Just put a question on the form when you come into the country. Why are you here for? Just do that for the first year, you know, 10 years. I don't care. Start someplace. I think the hardest part is they overthink it. Sometimes you just got to get your foot in the door and start collecting data because that will tell you how to collect the next round of data. Yeah. Just do something just, just to get you going. Anyway, I'm last. my last question on this subject matter uh, is we're rapidly approaching high season in the Caribbean. Much, yeah. to, much to the chagrin of the people of the Caribbean who don't like to talk about high season versus low season, but it's the fact of life. So we'll just deal with it. What do you see coming into the winter of 2021 and the spring of 2022 overall for the Caribbean? I think that's a it's, it's tough because I every time we turn on the news or what we're listening to the um, the specifics of the, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic and this virus just there is rapidly changing. So I think that today's prediction is like, I have to change it tomorrow, if that makes any sense. So I think I'll, I think one thing we do need to be mindful of is, yes, we, we, we want to take our vacations. We want this pandemic to be over. But with the low levels of vaccination rates in the Caribbean, I think it's really important to be mindful um, of where you may be visiting because so many of the, the countries just don't have the capacity if there were to be an outbreak, uh, you know, COVID outbreak to handle like, a, you know, major um, COVID-19 cases. So I think that you it, it's a good idea to kind of look at, well, where's the vaccination rate in this on this particular um, island? Um, how are they able to handle COVID cases right now? Might something if something were to happen to me, would I even be able to, you know, get the help that I need due to this current situation on a, you know, in a particular country? I think those are important things to consider because you don't want to add to add to the issues. But then you also it makes it a catch 22 because then you also know you want to contribute to the economy because they're struggling due to the pandemic. So I think that we will. Um, we're, what we're seeing right now is a shift. So for instance, most of the entertainers like Soka and reggae entertainers, I use them as an example that you might be seeing right now in the, in the region, um, are in the U S and they're in the U S because this is the mark. This is the market that's open and they need to make money. So, I mean, I've seen, it's been, it's been dizzy the number of shows I've seen with like, you know, the same lineup of Soka artists. But it's like, it makes sense because they, where they would have been making money in other markets, other carnivals or doing things back home, they can't do that right now do, just right. due to the situation. So they're in New York, they're in Miami, and they're doing show after show after show after show. Um, so I think we're going to see that shift stick around for a little while where it's like the entertainment is going where the source markets are open instead of people going to the source markets to be mm -hmm. entertained. We'll see that for a little bit. Um and we'll need to continue to be mindful of the vaccine, the vaccination rates in the region, because they are really low. And we kind of just thinking about not wanting to add to the problem, but also knowing that the, the islands need support. And then um, I think my biggest thing overall is just continuing to kind of go back to what we talked about in the beginning. We mm -hmm. the, the times uh, for that cookie cutter 
you know, model of promoting the region to the same group of people in the same way, that is dead. Um, you have to take the lessons from COVID and really move that forward. And this is the, I think this is the period where you'll get those people who are still kind of on the fence. Like, do I go here or do I go somewhere else? Well, if you can make the case that you care about me, that you care about my experience and you want to give me that 360 like experience and not just what you think matters to me because of where I'm from or what diaspora I'm a part of. I think that we'll do, you'll do better in seeing people say, okay, when I do take that first trip or that next trip next year, um, I'm going to go to this Caribbean country. So Oof. that's what I've been seeing. Well, Dave and I already, <laughs> Dave and I already know where we're going. Guyana. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Except yeah. we're going to make him get on a boat this time. Go ahead, Dave. <laughs> yeah, you'll get on the ferry. No speedboats for you guys. But I'll, that, you over I'll do the speedboat, but he won't. <laughs> That's right. You teased us earlier in terms of uh, projects that you're working on. To the extent of what you can reveal and what you can't reveal, can you share with us uh, what's next for Melissa, what you're working on? Yeah, so I'm working on some uh, just talking about, you know, that the the creative and cultural industries in the Caribbean and how they've been impacted by the pandemic. I've been working on like some business series that highlight the people um, behind these festivals and and give you a sense of of kind of what they've they've experienced or have been experiencing and what the future of festivals will look like in that regard. So that's something, you know, that's the most I can say about it, but there's a series coming up about okay. that. And um, then with Destination Diaspora, it's actually something I started more so as a passion project where I wanted to see more stories about the African diaspora in culture, travel, in the lifestyle space, people doing great things. I wanted to highlight the people um, and some of the places where we can not only hear those stories, but also connect the dots for the African diaspora and show like, hey, you know, for instance, you know, why, or what we might talk about, for instance, let's say uh, the Garifuna, who are, you know, indigenous to St. Vincent and the Grenadines, that's their homeland. But of course, you find the Garifuna in Central America. What are those connections? We have, the, and, and how, how, how can we talk about those things? Or how can we talk about the Temne tribe that is in, uh, that is in Sierra Leone and their connection to the folks in Grenada? Those are their descendants in Grenada and the connections they've been able to make over the last couple of years. I wanted to highlight those stories, especially that now where we're in the what the UN has named the decade for people of African descent, 2015 to 2024. We're at the midway point of that decade. But yet, you know, some of the not only the culture, but the contributions and connections of of people of African descent across the world still kind of remain, you know, unknown under the rocks, that kind of thing. So I wanted to start that as a way to highlight it. I've had a couple setbacks, won't lie, like the work schedule has been crazy and just kind of getting the, the support to do it as an independent project. But I've been working on some really great stuff and you'll be seeing some episodes coming soon where we connect the dots of the diaspora across the U.S. and then head out to the Caribbean and West Africa. So looking forward to that for sure. Hey, Michael, I see a book. I see a book. Mm, I see more than a book, but we can I see start a book there. cover. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so funny you should say that. You're now the third person who has said that to me, and I I've take I've taken that a lot more seriously in the past couple couple of months. Like I really need to sit with that and and see where that can go. 
Sounds good. Just, just, <laughs> just remember this as a person who's written two books and will start working on a third as soon as I finish writing a couple movies. The books by themselves ain't going to do it. You got to figure out how other ways to make some money off the books, like oh, public yes. speaking and stuff like oh, that. Yes. I, oh, I, yes. I run a, a talent management company and I tell people this all the time. They all want to write a book. And I say, well, what's your business model? And they don't have, oh, I just want to write the book and get it out. Or I'm going to make a lot of money off the book. No, the hell you're not. Not. <laughs> <laughs> not happening. So anyway. your, name is not, your name is not Barack or Michelle Obama. Yeah, yeah. You're, not get, you're not getting a million dollar advance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, and so that's part of why I did the start of the YouTube series first and got some backing for that. Because, of course, like with that and then the advertising, it's like, okay, it's making money this way. You can do, you know, then you can kind of branch out to do other things. But that's really great advice. Uh, I'm <laughs> so, just, yeah. I, 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 like I said, you know where to find me. <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> knock, 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 knock. <laughs> so anyway, Melissa, uh, thanks for doing this. Uh, I know we thanks chewed up more than, more than our scheduled time, but uh, it's just fascinating for us to have you on and, and have this conversation with you. So I, I know I could speak on behalf of Dave. We had a lot of fun with you. You're going to do this again, right? Kidnap. Yes, kidnap. I'll be, I'll be back. I'll be back. No, <laughs> ca- no kidnapping needed. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. Well, you can learn more about Melissa on her website, melissanoel.com. That's N-O-E-L.com, melissanoel.com. And uh, again, uh, you will find a lot of this information posted on our website as well. So uh, again, Melissa, thanks again for doing this. Um, and uh, we for look forward me. to the next time. And on behalf of my dear friend Dave Cumberbatch, this is Michael Gordon Bennett saying so long, and we will catch you on the next episode of Trip Cast 360.